All right, if you would, go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to start in uh, chapter 3 this morning. And as we kind of turn there, I want to tell you a, a kind of story about something I've discovered as a parent. And that is that one thing that's really cool is uh, sometimes your kids will uh, play with toys that you played with as a child. And then it's fun for you as a parent because you get to play with that toy again. And it's not weird or awkward or immature. It's you being a parent. Uh, and one of those toys uh, for me is is Legos. I loved Legos as a kid. Uh, it's fun for me now to build stuff uh, with my girls. But uh, one thing I've discovered is that Legos have changed a lot since I was a kid, especially for girls, because they have, uh, instead of like the square... Uh, blockish looking people. They have girls with, uh, you know, skirts and shirts and interchangeable hairstyles. And, you know, I never had those as a guy uh, growing up. Uh, but one thing that hasn't changed about Legos, and my parents have confirmed this for me, is that if in the middle of the night you are walking around your house barefoot and you happen to step on a Lego, especially like the the four bump square ones, they are exceedingly painful. You will scream, you will moan, you will fall down probably because of the intense pain shooting up your limb from your foot. And it's just amazing to me that something that is so incredibly tiny can cause that much pain. But if you've ever experienced it, you know that it's true. And uh, I tell you that story not just to talk about Legos because they're fun, but because uh, in our passage this morning we see a very similar reality, and that's that sometimes things that are incredibly small in comparison to the rest of uh, the, the object, the bigger thing, they can affect and control and impact that larger object in a great, great way. And so today in James, we're going to be learning about the tongue, and he's going to use similar illustrations like that, uh, but unfortunately for James, they didn't have Legos in his day, and so he had to come up with some other stuff So let's read our passage this morning. It's going to be James chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through 12. If you already haven't found the passage and you're using one of the Bibles from under the chairs, uh, this morning's passage is on page 1012. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again this morning. That every time we open it, every time we submit ourselves to what it has to say to us, it has the power to transform us by your spirit. God, we pray that today as we talk about a universal struggle, one that we all share, God, that you would just, by your Spirit, show us the way in which we sin using our tongue. God, that you would help us not just to see uh, the expression of sinful acts in our lives through our tongue, but also that by your Spirit, you would trace out the root in our heart. God, that by your gospel, because of what Christ has done for us this morning, that you would begin to tame this unruly part of us. That you would bring even it under your control along with the rest of our lives. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So at the beginning of this section on the tongue, James starts out by addressing teachers. What he says is pretty straightforward. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. So brothers, he's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. He says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Here, James seems to be teaching or, or picking up on what Jesus taught about in the Gospels, that, that those uh, who have a, a greater uh, responsibility in the life of his people will be judged. They'll have more accountability, right? In Luke 10:48, he says, "Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required." So these people who are in positions of leadership in the church, they're going to receive a greater judgment. It's going to be stricter on them. And really, this makes sense with where he's going. He's talking about the tongue. And if you are someone who stands up in front of people and talks, on a regular basis, you are going to get yourself in trouble from time to time. right? Proverbs says, where words are many, sin is not absent. So if you talk a lot, if you talk a lot in front of people, you're going to say stupid stuff. I think I'm proof of that to all of you. And so he's saying that, he's not, he's not saying don't become teachers. He's saying that if you do, be aware of the fact that this stricter judgment will come. And the reason why we know that he's not saying, you know, don't be a teacher is because other places in Scripture assume that we as believers will be teachers. In the book of Hebrews, he, uh, the author criticizes the church that he's writing to. He says, you should be teachers by now. The reality was that the church that he was writing to was so immature that they couldn't communicate the truths about God to other people. They were, they were immature and weak in their faith. So he criticizes him for that. He doesn't say, you know, you guys are doing great. None of you are teachers. He says, you should be able to teach. So here it seems like James is talking about not the responsibility on all Christians to teach, all Christians to make disciples, but more on the kind of specific office of teaching in the church. And so that's why, as a church, we want to take this place seriously. And so we uh, 
give lots of people the opportunity to teach. And if you're someone who feels like God has gifted you in that way, we would love for you to come and talk to the elders and say, hey, I'd like to, an opportunity to teach. But when you do that, we as a body are going to do our job of helping hold you accountable. And I would love for you all to do that for me. If I am doing things or saying things and you think that doesn't sound right, I want you to come to me and tell me that. Because as James says, I'm going to be judged with a stricter judgment. And so we need to help each other uh, be accountable in this way. And I also want to kind of say something that James doesn't say. And that's that we could hear this, uh, especially all of you as listeners, and think, well, verse 1, I'm off the hook. I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not up there talking, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, I know personally, as a listener that I can sin just as much sitting back there as I can standing up here. Right In Matthew, Jesus says that the, the judgment that we use against others will be used against us. And personally, I'm an exceptionally critical listener. Exceptionally judgmental listener. And so when I hear people, whether it's here or somewhere else, uh, maybe a place like HLG Chapel, some of you maybe can relate to hearing people speak and think, I don't like that guy. I don't like what he said. I don't like how he said it. And I'm not talking about saying this person spoke lies or they didn't share the gospel. We should criticize those things. We should point those things out. But we should recognize that just because we're listening, just because we're not teaching, it doesn't mean we're off the hook. We're still responsible uh, for what we do and how we act and how we listen. Uh, so I want to take James's criticism against me and throw it back at all of you as well. And this kind of leads into what he wants to say. He wants to say that here's this one example of people that can struggle with this, and then he moves to the fact that we all do. He says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If there is someone who can control their tongue, they can control everything about themselves. This level of self-control would uh, be evident. And he says, this person is a perfect man. So the question is, does this person exist? Is there a human being that has complete control over their tongue? No. Right? He might as well be saying, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a golden unicorn. This person doesn't exist. And that's why he's going to spend 12 verses addressing this struggle. He's going to spend 12 verses addressing this universal problem that we all face. It's going to manifest itself in different ways in different people, but it's a struggle that everyone has. And then he gives us these three illustrations. And what he does, he, he takes this small thing, kind of like I did at the beginning, and show how it affects a much larger object. So he talks about bits in the mouths of horses, and they put that in the horse, and because of that tiny little bit, then the rider can control the whole thing. So that's what our tongue is like. Our tongue is a very small thing, but it affects our whole body. It affects our whole life. Then he moves on to talk about the rudder on a ship. Compared to the rest of the ship, the rudder is a very, very small thing. But they can use it to steer the ship wherever they want to go. In the next example, in uh, verse 5, he kind of moves forward. He's been talking just about these small objects which affect or control other objects. But when he talks about fire... 
he moves on to uh, kind of progress to talk about the destructive aspects of our tongue. It doesn't just affect things. It doesn't just control things. It destroys things. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. It doesn't take much. A tiny little spark in a dry forest can burn it down. And that is, is pointing to how our tongue, even though it's such a small thing and such a small uh, place, can affect things and bring this kind of destruction. That's what he says next. Verse 6, he says, the tongue is a fire. It's not like a fire. It is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. What he means here is that through our tongue, kind of all the sinful aspects of the world come into expression. He says it's set among our members. This is what it does. It stains the whole body. You think about food coloring in a glass of water. Our tongue affects all of us. It sets on fire our course of life. It threatens to destroy everything that we are, everything that we do, our families, our homes, our jobs, our relationships. And he says it's set on fire by hell. This is an exceptionally strong statement from James about the tongue. The, when we uh, gossip, when we slander, when we lie, when we don't say things that we should say, when we sin with our tongue, its source is in hell. That's where this fire comes from. That's where this temptation comes from. And so when we do those things, when we sin with our tongue and struggle with these kinds of sins, we are doing the devil's work in our lives. He wants to destroy. He wants to tear down the work that God is doing in us, the work that God is doing in our church, the work that God is doing in his creation. And Satan attempts to use our tongues and the tongues of other people to bring this kind of destroying fire to those works. And when we give in, when we choose to use our tongue in these ways, we are doing his work for him. He goes on to say that uh, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being, this goes back to the beginning where we said this isn't possible, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. When he talks about blessing, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. Blessing is when we uh, speak truth about God or sing praise to God. It's us giving him what he deserves from us. Cursing, uh, it's, you know, it's not saying particular words. It's not saying mean things about other people. It's more than that. Cursing for them is us kind of calling down God's judgment on someone else. It'd be like the equivalent of saying, like, go to hell. Only like really mean it. Not just, I'm trying to shock you with my language, but I want God to take you and put you there now. And he's saying that when we use our tongue in sinful ways, that's effectively what we're doing. We are taking people who are created in the image of God and we are treating them as if that's what we would like to happen to them. So he's building, right? He's talking about what the tongue is. He's talking about what the tongue does. 
and he's, he's progressing us. He, he, he says this is a universal struggle. This is something we all face. This is a bad thing. This is something that shouldn't be. And I feel like he brings me to this place where I want to know, then what do I do? I've got this problem. This is a big problem. What do I do? And then he says in verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I feel like he brings me to the brink and then he confuses me. Right? It'd be like if you went to the doctor and he's like, hey, you've got this huge problem. You've got this parasite inside of you and it's eating away at your brain. And then you say, what do I do? And he looks at you and he says, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. What do I do? But, right, James is pastoral. Right? He's writing to transform the people he's writing to. So it can't just be this kind of empty cliche that it seems like. So let's, let's read this again and let's really think about this. This is the answer he's giving. And so we need to understand it. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? What's the answer? No, right? It pours forth salt water if it's a salt spring. If it's a fresh spring, it pours forth fresh water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Or a grapevine produce figs? No. He says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's talking about here in these kind of seemingly cliche examples is he's talking about the fact that one thing produces what it's made to produce. Whatever the source is, that's what the result is. It can't be changed. It can't do something else. It can only do what it was made to do. And we think about these things, we think about fruit and trees and springing forth, this reminds me a lot of what Jesus talked about. And James is super familiar with the teachings of Jesus. This is what he uses as he's instructing this church. And Jesus said some very similar things to this. In Matthew 15, 18, right, he's talking to the uh, Pharisees and they're criticizing him and they're saying that, uh, you know, his disciples, they're eating with, with hands that haven't been washed. And he says, you're defiling yourself. You're making yourself unclean. And Jesus kind of turns it around on them and he says, not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you. And he talks about how speech and sinful acts, they come from the heart. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Matthew 17, or 7, 16 through 18, he says this, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Sounds a lot like James. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What he's talking about here is that I think James is hinting at what Jesus said. He's reminding his readers of what they've heard from him. That it's not about their tongue. The tongue is a symptom of a larger problem that resides in their heart. It's what comes, uh, what comes out of their mouth proceeds from their heart. And so if you're here, and we've already acknowledged that everyone here has this struggle, and you struggle with sins of the tongue, whether it's slander or gossip or lying or you know, saying overly harsh or overly critical things, or on the other side, maybe your struggle is not using your tongue. 
Maybe you don't say things that you should. Maybe you don't share the gospel. Maybe you don't speak encouraging words that you have for people. Maybe you don't stand up to defend Christ when other people speak against him. Right? We can sin by using our tongue, and we can also sin by not using our tongue. If you're here and, and, and your struggle is something like that, first of all, we should realize we're not all alone. We're all together. This is a universal struggle. So you go up to someone and you say, hey, I struggle with this. They shouldn't say, I find that very hard to believe. They should say, I know, I do too. They may not be the same thing. They may not express themselves in the same way, but we all share this struggle. So if this is you, first of all, recognize that you're not alone. Uh, Second of all, I think that we should recognize that there is something that we can do. James' answer is to look not to the expression of the sin, but to the root of it. And so, I kind of want to throw out three specific examples of how we could sin with the tongue and then talk about how we could maybe trace those things to the root. And I'll start with myself. Um, it might be shocking to you guys, but I used to be pretty scared of speaking in public. Like in class, when a question would get asked, I would know the answer or have something to share and wouldn't. In small group, I would uh, feel like I had something encouraging to share with someone else and wouldn't do it because uh, on the one hand, uh, I know that Proverbs says that even the fool is thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. And so I could sit there and people could think that I was smart and I was wise, but if I spoke then that might show them that I maybe wasn't as smart or as wise as they thought I was. And so I spent many years uh, refusing to do what what God wanted me to do uh, by using the gift uh, that he's given me. And uh, another area might be gossip, right? Maybe you're someone who uh, likes to have juicy information on someone else. And maybe you don't gossip like I was afraid of speaking because of, you know, inward pride and wanting to kind of keep up this appearance. But you gossip because you want people to accept you. And so your hope is that if you have this little information, then people will talk to you. People will like you. People will want to spend time with you. And so you keep uh, hearing things and remembering things and sharing things that you shouldn't to keep that going. Or people lie because they don't want people to know that they've failed. They don't want people to know that they've done something wrong, so they hide themselves. So whatever struggle it is, we need to find those things, find the root, and then address those things with the gospel. For me, it was about recognizing that God had given me in Christ all I need for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1. I didn't need to have the right words. I didn't need to say things in the right way. I didn't need to impress people in my small group. I'd already received everything I needed from him. He had accepted me. He had given me a gift. And if I didn't do that, then I was saying essentially, thanks for the gospel, but I'd rather just keep my mouth shut. For gossip, right? You've already been accepted in Christ. Most gossip happens between believers, between people who have already been accepted in Christ. If we would just believe the gospel, if we would believe that we don't need to have information to share with one another to be friends, 
We don't need to impress people with the latest scoop. And maybe we could have an actual lasting Christ-centered relationship where we're growing together instead of tearing other people down. With lying, right, there's no reason to hide. First of all, we all know that we're not perfect. So me or you telling someone else that we're not perfect isn't shocking. It's normal. If Christ really has given us his grace, then those sins have been paid for anyway. So what do we need to hide from them ourselves or hide them from other people for? We don't. Whatever your struggle is, wherever you're at with these things, what we need to do is we need to think about why do I do that? Why do I lie? Why do I gossip? Why do I slander? Why do I not speak up when I should? And then think about those things in the context of the gospel. How does the gospel answer those problems? Because the the not speaking or the speaking isn't the sin. It's the heart issue that produces that in us. So those are the things that we want to think about. And kind of as we close, you know, we've, we've been talking uh, a bit about how this, this perfect person doesn't exist. You know, and I, I hope that at least some of you at the beginning when I asked that question thought, like, is this a trick question? Right? Because Jesus was the perfect man. He's not purely human. He's also uh, divine as well. But he did fully control his tongue, right? He was able to control his entire body. I think that that should tell us two things. First of all, it should make us thankful for the fact that he obeyed where we couldn't, right? He took on flesh to identify with us, to become our substitute, not just in death. We often focus on how he paid our penalty and he was our substitute on the cross, but he was also our substitute in that he lived the life that we couldn't live. We can't tame our tongue. We can't be perfect in this way, but he was for us. And so when we fail, we can take comfort in the fact that he succeeded where we fail. When we use our tongue in sinful ways, we can recognize that we have grace because he didn't. And the flip side of that is as we kind of move forward from our sin, as we begin to make this struggle more of a struggle instead of just a victory for the tongue, we know that his obedience paved the way for our obedience. Right? Him uh, ascending into heaven and sending the Spirit to us is what enables us to obey. And so while perfection is probably way beyond our grasp, that doesn't mean that we can't have victory. If we think of it as as potty training. Well, potty training is a bad example because you don't want your kid to keep having accidents when they're like 30. Uh, But at the beginning, at least, right, there's an increasing amount of victory with the misstep misstep or mistake here and there. Uh, And we celebrate that. They only pooped their pants twice today. That's great. Our goal is to rest in his obedience and to use it to motivate us to obey as well. So as we kind of move to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, first, I mean, I would encourage you just to, you know, whether you walked in here this morning thinking about the fact that 
you know, your tongue is your biggest struggle or something else. The answer is the same. Right? He obeyed where we couldn't, and he obeyed so that we can. His grace is what enables us to do that. It's, it enables us to be forgiven and it enables us to move forward. So I would encourage you just to ask the Spirit to search your heart, uh, to kind of put his finger on what your struggles are in this area. We've all got them. We just need to know what they are if we're not aware of them all. And then ask him by his grace to begin to show you the root of those things in your heart. Right? If we all walk away from this place and don't say anything bad all week, but still think bad things all week, that's not victory. That's hypocrisy. So we need him to both point out the sins and show us the roots so we can begin to address those things with the gospel. So spend some time praying about those things, and then whenever you're ready, go and take the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is very clear that as men and women in this world, we will not be perfect. And at the same time, that we don't have to be. God, we thank you that you sent your son to be perfect for us. That he lived the life that we couldn't and can't and won't ever live. That he died in his perfection, paying the penalty for our imperfection. How we thank you that his obedience not only gives us comfort in our disobedience, but it motivates us to pursue it. Help us by your spirit to put to death the deeds of our tongue, that we would identify the actions and root out the heart issues that are causing it. And that by your grace, we would begin not only to bless you as we ought, but that we would be a blessing to people around us that are created in your image too. That we would not say things we shouldn't, and that we would say the things that we should. I pray that by your grace, you would help use this passage to mold us and shape us and transform us in these ways.